Welcome to Smart Sex, Smart Love. We're talking about sex goes beyond the taboo and talking about love goes beyond the honeymoon. My guest today is Zachary Zane, a Brooklyn-based columnist, sex expert, and activist whose work focuses on sexuality, culture, and the LGBTQ community. He's the author of Boy Slut, a memoir and manifesto, and co-author of Men's Health Best Sex Ever. He writes Sexplain It, the sex and relationship advice column at Men's Health, and Navigating Non-Monogamy, the polyamorous relationship column in Cosmopolitan. He is editor-in-chief of Boy Slut Zine, which publishes nonfiction erotica from kinksters across the globe. Zachary's work has been featured in New York Times, Rolling Stone, Washington Post, Playboy, and more. Today, we're going to talk with boy slut Zachary Zane, as he calls himself. I love it. <laughs> uh, bisexuality, open relationships, gay hookup apps, and of course, his book, Boy Slut, A Memoir and Manifesto. Welcome, Zachary. Thank you so much for having me on, Joe. I'm uh, excited to uh, delve into it here. Yeah, me too, really. And I've been watching you and watching all the uh, stuff on Instagram and everything. And I have to say, I love your work and I still love your work. But even though I've been so open and so my own kink and my own stuff, I watch you and sometimes I'm like, I'm like cringing. I'm like, why am I cringing? Like, this is like, you go to places, I'm like, oh my God, I never, I don't know. I never thought of, I don't know what it is. I mean, I write very explicitly. I write very graphically and and I think that's on purpose too. You know, you know, it's not just for shock value. I, I think it's important to be able to talk about sex and to have like candid and explicit conversations about it. And I've noticed specifically often like with bisexual activism, we kind of purposely like leave out the sex aspect of it because we want to make ourselves like more palatable to gay and straight audiences. The same way older generations of gays did that too, where like they there was like a movement to kind of remove sex from it. I'm like, no, uh, sex and raunchy sex is a large part of my sexuality. So it's important that when discussing bisexuality to be graphic, to be explicit. And if that makes some people uncomfortable, good. You should be unpacking that. Why does my sex life make you feel uncomfortable? Yeah. No, I love it. And you just explained, because I'm of that generation, that we were trying to take sex out of it so we could be more um, accepted. But yeah, but that's not the case anymore. And you're not doing that. That makes sense to me. And it's probably, that's why I have a cringe um, response, because it goes against what I was doing before. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's just get right started into why you decided to write the, your book, Boy Slut, a memoir and manifesto. Sure. I mean, uh, there are a few reasons why here, but I think the first one is I just really hadn't seen like a memoir written by a bisexual man about how to overcome sexual shame. And, you know, there are a lot of gay memoirs and I just hadn't seen my story and experience really represented. You know, there was very, very little bisexual visibility up until more recently. Um, and now we're starting to see it everywhere. And I'm I'm a part of that and I love it and I live for it. But one thing I realized when I, I started, you know, writing about sex and relationships almost a decade ago. Um, was that my experience as a bisexual man was actually not unique. Uh, but I felt so alone, so isolated. I didn't think bisexuality was real because every bi guy I knew in college came out as gay shortly after. So while I am egocentric, I'm not delusional. I was like, I can't be the only bi guy in the world here. Um, but of course, there are bi guys absolutely everywhere. And once I came out as bi and started talking about it, I realized, oh my God, there are bi guys everywhere, but they're so there's such a heavy negative connotation with the label itself. So they don't identify as it. 
or you know they're closeted whatever it is so i realized it was a voice that was really represented or excuse me a voice that was not represented and really needed and so i wrote this book and then another big aspect of this book and one thing i bring up is the fact that i didn't grow up in like a sex negative household uh you know like my parents were very sex positive i had gay uncles i have gay uncles on both sides of my family my dad's side my mom's side i knew it was okay to be gay and still i had so much sexual shame and that's just because you know even though i had you know great upbringing great parents i picked up sex negativity from my school peers media teachers you know sex negativity is so pervasive and so insidious and so for me it was important to be like hey it's not just those people who got kicked out of their house for being gay who can write this book like I, and that's why they have their trauma like you can have a pretty good upbringing and still have so much sexual same and so much sex negativity it's like unless you live in like a polyamorous nudist commune without social media in the middle of nowhere okay maybe those guys don't have sexual shame but the rest of us who live in society we do and of course this book is kind of my journey about how i was able to really overcome that sexual shame I really appreciate you saying that because a lot of people wonder why do I have it if I have gay uncles or gay parents or whatever. And it, it is. It's insidious. That was a great word. Yeah. What would you say was the hardest part about writing your book? Ooh, I, I think for me, it, it's reliving kind of all the people I've hurt in the past. Um, you know, before I was out as bisexual, before I knew how to communicate my desires, you know, at a time when I thought that ghosting was the right thing that you should be doing, right? Because instead of having, I'm like, why have an awkward conversation saying you don't like someone? That's just going to hurt their feelings. Let me just not respond to them. That That's the more mature response. I'm actually saving them hurt and pain. But I think reflecting on all the people I hurt, again, it was not maliciously. I was young. I was closeted. I was doing the best I could with the information that I had. And I was also deeply insecure and deeply ashamed. But I think reliving those moments was like, ah, like that, that sucks. And I think I was vulnerable in a way that I think people are somewhat confused by because I am so open sexually mm -hmm. and I can talk about getting DP'd and my hairy butthole and sucking dick and gagging on it until the cows come home and I love it. And that doesn't make me nervous or ashamed. But if you like, You'll notice on my social media or on my zine, I don't talk about my relationships with my parents. I don't talk about my bad breakups. I don't talk about um, these other elements where I'm vulnerable. And so, but people assume that just because I'm sexually open, I'm open in every other aspect of my life. And that's actually not necessarily the case. So I was a lot more vulnerable about, yeah, my family, my past relationships, my breakups and other things that I had done. Um, and that was really challenging. And there were definitely parts where my editor is like, dig deeper, be more honest with yourself, like, like lay it all out on the page. And I was like, yeah. oh, Jesus, this is scary. <laughs> and it's so, it's so interesting to watch you do it at such a young age. Usually people do their memoirs like later, like at my age, you know, it, it, it's oh, my God. I, you know, I'm in the assisted living home with my dad and um, you know, his friends are 70s, 80s, 90s. And they say, oh, my son is a memoir. And they look at me and they're like, this fucking little kid has a memoir. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm allowed to curse, but I just did. But it's like, this little schmuck, like he's 30 years old. Um, or at the time I was 30. I'm 32 now. Okay. But um, it's it really is a collection of essays. You know what I mean? And I think the reason why we kind of settled on memoirs is just because they tend to sell better. But if you look at it as a collection of essays, that kind of makes more sense. Mm -hmm. Um 
And I mean, it's a memoir too, but it, it is it is that as well. But yeah, it's like I can't write a memoir every year. Maybe 10 years from now, I'll write man slut. And then 10 years after that, I'll write daddy slut. And, uh, and, and that will be the, the fi- everything I've learned in every decade I get to write a new memoir. That's great. I like it. Um, you know, you said DP'd, and I don't think everyone's going to know what DP'd means. Uh, so that's double penetration. Uh, in the case of my anatomy, that's two penises in uh, my butthole. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so I don't want to know what that means. Well, here, yeah. All right. Thank you. my my pleasure (laughs) all right you have a chapter in the book about the impact of grinder let's talk about that before you do i just want to say uh plug my own little thing that last year you know i woke up and grinder had uh um, adopted the term side that i coined um and they put it in as a sexual preference for top bottom verse and side did you know that Yes, because I'm oh. on Grinder, and so I see it. <laughs> so I see it, and I am, and side is not a small demographic. No. I don't know what your date, like, if there is, like, data data on it, but it's, yes. like, it, it is it is quite, it, it's more than 1 in 50. You know what I mean? It's more than yeah. 2%. I'd really say it's 1 in 20. It's, like, um, 5%. And, again, this is not back scientifically, but just anecdotally, and from what I yeah. see, it really is not a small demographic, and it's so great that people have this word to describe it and to know that like you know it's not necessarily that like they have internalized homophobia or anything like that but it's just like okay like there's so much more to sex than penetration and being able to explore that and not have shame for it and have a label for it is really important but i've seen it adopted um everywhere i I think like pretty much all hookup apps now have it uh, i'm pretty sure yeah, they do. And I know that a lot of people, I have a group for sides, a, a 7,200 pe- men are in there on Facebook. It's called Side Guys. And they're very, very upset about how they get treated on Grinder. And I hear them, but you know, um, because there's tops and bottoms and then people don't like size, they're judgmental. I've been on Grinder myself. I'm married. I'm 30 years married. We have an open marriage. I just use it to play. And I don't feel, I don't have a problem with it. Like if somebody's mean or they block me, I don't like it, but I, I like get over it. But you talked about it, you know, can you talk about it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's because I think you're a little bit older, you're a little bit more mature, you're a little bit secure in yourself, you know, but when you are like a 25 year old or 30 and you just are getting rejected in this way, it can feel, it's easy to sometimes dismiss one or two people, but like if you're on Grindr a lot, it's like the rejections just get so brutal, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like, like so unnecessarily nasty and mean in a way, it really is exposed, like, kind of the racism, the femphobia, the fat phobia, the transphobia, the like any opportunity to other and treat people like shit. Gay men will do, yeah, uh, and gay, queer, bi men will do, and it's just like you would think for a you know population that's been ridiculed and teased that we would be kinder to other people, but it's it's kind of that cliche or that phrase that like hurt people hurt people. Mm-hmm. Like, like it's very much that and these people it's very velvet rage uh like a ty- type dynamic you know what yeah. i mean where it's just like yeah. these people i know the people who are mean and nasty like are not happy with themselves you know what i mean it's not like yeah. they live like happy lives like and i do want to extend them some you know sympathy condolences whatever the word is but at the same time like you cannot be interested in someone and not be a dick to them yeah um and it's just a shame uh, how that dynamic is. And I think just over time, yeah, it can really make you feel 
especially if you're not feeling desired, like, oh, no one's going to like me because of my body size. No one's going to like me because I'm black. No one's going to like me because I'm HIV positive. And you internalize it. And you're like, I'm never going to find love. I can't even find casual sex. And so for some men, it, it can be really detrimental to their mental health. It does make sense. And you're probably right about me being older, except that as an older guy, I do take it personally. It's, it's hard not to in when you're around gay men in real life. Like to me, Grindr is a playground. It's not really a, a, a serious place to me. But yeah. I, had, I had hoped. I mean, when I was your age, I started doing the advocacy work for gay men. And I had hoped by the time I was 60 that things would be better. And I think they're worse. I think we're meaner to each other than we were when I was young. <sighs> I... That's so sad. And, you know, I, I can't I can't necessarily speak to that because I, I don't know exactly what it was like 30 years ago. But like, um, I don't know if it's just because of social media, like yeah. like a part of me is just like that. And people feel very emboldened and empowered uh, from the safety of their own toilets, saying terrible things about people. And then that kind of extends into real life. And maybe it was the fact that we had more like physical community spaces and that was the way we were actually meeting people. So if you're going to be cunty and mean, you had to say it to my fucking face. Mm-hmm. And were you really going to do that? Um, God, like it, it is it is sad. You know, parts of it are sad. And one thing like I've noticed um, and this is something I've seen. And again, I'm I, I'm laudly, I'm largely stereotyping. Obviously, this is not all gay men, and of course, there are gay men who have a healthy relationship with their identity, who treat people with respect, who are kind, have a great relationship with sex. Like, I don't want to make it like I don't want to perpetuate any stereotypes. But what was interesting about moving to New York is you had a lot of gay guys who got, um, you know, like from Bumblefuck Idaho or whatever, got kicked out of their family for being gay, had a really traumatic upbringing. And really a lot of homophobia from the church, from their family, from their community. And they moved to New York, and but they haven't actually worked on themselves. Mm-hmm. So they haven't actually put in the work to deal with their trauma. So they're still, yes, you're in a place where there's significantly less homophobia. There are gay spaces, gay scenes, but still they are insecure. Still they respond very poorly to rejection because they've been rejected their whole all whole life. So if they get rejected sexually, they can lash out and be angry because it reminds them of their parents who rejected them in a different field. And it's like moving to New York is just not enough. You still have to work on yourself. You still have to get into therapy. You still have to look at the root of your problem. Otherwise, you're going to be passive aggressive or just blatantly aggressive to your friends in a way. And that, And that's not that's not what chosen family is about. That's not what community is all about. So, of course, I'm always encouraging everyone to get into therapy all the time to work on these issues. But I just noticed that. And again, I noticed this among, you know, this the 18 to 25 year old demographic. Right. And I think yeah. over time, as they get older and they mature and they have a sense of themselves, um, you know, they can become less mean and more secure in who they are. But, yeah, it, it was really frustrating when I moved to New York and I was trying to make gay friends. I'm like, you guys are mean like, yeah. like this isn't fun i'm not enjoying yeah. this you know it's so weird i'm so glad listening to you it sounds like me when i was so when i wrote my book i was uh 40 uh 10 smart things gay men can do to improve their lives and then i did my own book tour and i had the exact same experience people that back then didn't know what internalized homophobia was where a lot of guys know that now from social media but they hadn't i was like why is my book i'm from detroit michigan i wasn't some cosmopolitan guy and i but i spoke about gay issues and it was popular like bookstores were back then right so my books were in the windows and everything 
And people said, just because we've moved to New York or San Francisco or wherever, Chicago, doesn't mean that we came healed. We brought our unfinished business and we didn't, just like you just said. Yeah. With older guys too. And I mean, I was 40 at the time, but now what you're saying, which may sound you know, we're just anecdotally talking. If it's the younger guys, still horrible, but at least it's the, more of the younger guy and not yeah. all gay. Yeah. And I think we do have, yeah, no, it's definitely not all gay men. And, you know, and I have managed to find my chosen family, my people, and I have gay friends, queer friends, bi friends, trans friends. You know, it's a very queer community of people who are supportive and loving. And it's now that I found it, it's absolutely incredible. I was, uh, but it just took me a little bit of time to get there and to, and to yeah. find these people who have been working on their trauma and their issues and are aware that like, oh, this is my baggage that I need to unpack and let me not project it and put it on other people. We don't have gay grandpas. We don't have gay elders. You it, know, it, it really is so sad. And I think about that a lot and how lucky I am that I have uh, gay uncles um, who, yeah, like who lived in Provincetown. They just moved now to like um, Western Mass. But like I was able to go to Provincetown during the summer, sleep on an air mattress uh, and get to explore my, you know, sexuality, but also have these older gay uncles to talk to. And of course, because of the HIV AIDS de- epidemic, we've lost so many men also yeah. just because we weren't allowed to get married the same way to just to see a, a couple that's still in a relationship for 30 yeah. years because you know so many gay men didn't aspire to marriage because marriage wasn't feasible we couldn't have it so i was very lucky and feel so blessed to have had these kind of gay elders and these gay mentors that i can talk to uh, about this but i know so many younger gay men don't but um i think we're getting there and you know i yeah. hope you know 10 15 years from now or whatever age that i i will get to be that queer you know mentor for the the younger gay and bi men now you coined the phrase bisexual audibility in your book can you, yes. can you tell me what it means and why it's so important oh absolutely so i talk about uh visibility in the book and a little bit of my frustration with that word uh i feel like often visibility is like hailed as a like panacea where it's just like, oh, we just need more visibility and that will solve all social inequity and all racial issues and all gender issues and all sexuality issues. And for me, like visibility is just the first step. It is the bare minimum. Mm-hmm. It is showing that like we are real, we exist, um, and we want some goddamn respect as, as a marginalized group. And it's also for that marginalized group to recognize that they um, are not alone, right? There are other people like them Um, But I specifically talk about bisexual visibility being a little bit more challenging because unless if you have a man on your right arm, a woman on your left arm and a non-binary person on your third arm and you're all making out simultaneously, you can't be bisexually visible. And while that sounds like an ideal quad for me, I know that's probably not what most bisexual people are looking for. But, you know, when you're a guy in a relationship with a guy, you're perceived as gay, a guy in a relationship with a woman, you're perceived as straight. So... Because visibility is very different for bisexual people, like what we need to do is actually have bisexual audibility, which I coined, which is just means being as loud and obnoxious as humanly possible talking about bisexuality. Mm-hmm. Because we can't, you can't tell we're bi by looking at us. That means we have to say it. We have to claim the label. We actually have to use it. And it's just so important because... Right now, bi people are significantly less likely to be out to their family, their friends, their partners than gay and lesbians. 
And, you know, we, we know all of the negative mental health outcomes and physical health outcomes that actually come from being closeted and feeling like you don't have a community. So the way for bisexual people to have a community, to feel accepted, to feel embraced is to talk about it and to start coming out. And yeah, so I, I really encourage people to use the word if they feel it's right for them. Yeah, no, I love it. Now, one thing I do want to ask you, because, you know, you sent me a packet, I got your book and I got that dildo, right? Yes. So, uh, and it's it's the colors of the bisexual flag, right? Yes, yes. So I, I should, I have a limited edition uh, dildo with Fun Factory called the Buy Amore. And it comes with, um, yeah, it is, um, it's in the colors of the bisexual flag. It is, uh, sadly, it is not a mold of my penis. I really asked them <laughs> yeah. to do that. And apparently that cost more money and was a pain in the ass. But um, this is a very fun uh, dildo for for everyone, uh, all genders, all bodies here. I have it at home. But, but <laughs> I posted about it and people were like, what makes it a bisexual dildo? So can you tell us? Oh, it just- that, it's just because of the colors, right? right. No, like it's not actually. No, I mean, everyone has a butthole. You know what I mean? That's regardless of sexual orientation, gender, whatever. So anyone... Anyone can put in their butthole, but that's why it's uh, just because of the colors. So, yeah. All right. I didn't want to answer that. I said, I think it's just the colors, but I'll ask him when I do a podcast. Yes. All right. Sorry. Right. The next one is in your book, you do talk a lot about um, uh, bisexual visibility and sexual autonomy. Can you share a little bit about those two subjects? Sure. So, I spoke a little bit about bisexual visibility, but in terms of like sexual autonomy, yeah. um, I, I have a chapter about, you know, I'm on prep. Um, and how I don't uh, use condoms with a lot of men, right? And especially if you are in New York City and you're on grinders or grinder sniffies or scruff, like the vast, vast majority of queer men are not using condoms. And I talk about how we all have a different level of risk when it comes to STIs, right? Some people are much more STI averse. Mm-hmm. Um, and that way, getting you know an STI, they really do not want to get an STI. Some people, it's not that big of a deal, especially, you know, if they're on prep, they know they're not going to get HIV. The rest can be treated with antibiotics or, you know, if it's a viral infection, like, you know, so many people have herpes anyway, but essentially it's like either it's manageable or we can treat it with antibiotics. And so I really think it's important for us to be allowed to choose what our level of risk is. But what's important when discussing this, and I compare it to, I I use, I kind of take from kink culture and I talk about rack which is risk-aware consensual kink. And so what kind of this philosophy is, is when you do kink, you know, uh, you are very aware of the risks and you do your best to mitigate it. So like if you are getting tied up, you have a pair of safety shears nearby just in case it cuts off circulation. You know, you have a safety word when you have sex. If you're doing choke play where you can't speak, you have a safety action. So, but even though you have these things in place, you still are acknowledging a risk. There's still a risk that you're allowed to take. And so I kind of want to, oh, sorry. And one thing that Rack is very contingent upon is having the correct information and education, Mm -hmm. right? You can't make a decision unless if you have all the information available to you, which is why it's important to be honest. It's important to know how STIs affect your body, which STIs are treatable, which STIs, you know, Um, are actually protected when wearing condoms. You know, you can still get syphilis or herpes because that's from skin-to-skin contact. You can still get oral and um, gonorrhea and oral chlamydia if you don't wear a condom. And so, like, really what I'm advocating for is being allowed to 
you should be able to have all the information you have, and then you can make the decision for wh- how you want to engage in sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's very important. Um, and I think, and part of this chapter, I really spoke about STI shaming and how like it's just so yeah. pervasive. And the fact that we say it's gross that means people don't get tested, people don't people lie when they have STIs, um, and it further causes more and more STIs. And even you know the, the move away from calling them STDs to STIs because, you know, it's sexually transmitted diseases versus sexually transmitted infections. It's like gonorrhea is a bacterial infection. You, you don't call strep, which is a bacterial infection, a disease. Yeah, right, <laughs> you know, right. that's, a way, that's a way we stigmatize it. And also just the history of STIs. It's just so racist and homophobic. You know what I mean? Like, especially how we use like HIV to justify and AIDS to justify homophobia, to justify racism. Um, so, yeah, I know I'm kind of rambling here, but really this no, chapter yeah. was about, you know, making sure that you were informed and you were educated, you were being honest and being able to decide the level of risk that you want to take with, of course, the consent of your partners. I think it's important you're sharing this because people, when they see memoir, they're not sure they're going to learn about your life, but are they going to learn about information, too, and facts? And you do put that in there. So it's great. Yeah, but it, I got a lot of... um Hate hatred for this. I think, especially it was from people, not queer men, because queer men, you know, aren't wearing condoms the same way. So I think people, some like straight people were very surprised to learn, you know, the lack of condom usage in metropolitan cities that have grinder and whatnot. Yeah. And it's like, I'm not advocating for you to not wear condoms. That's mm-hmm. Of course, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I want you to be educated about the risks. And if you make this informed decision yourself with the consent of your partner, that's a decision that you're allowed to make. But people were just like, oh, my God, Zach's cavalier anti-condom use. And I'm like, I have more conversations about my sexual health and my condom use with my partners than fucking anyone, than people yeah. who are wearing condoms. Because yeah. I want to make sure people are aware of the risk. I make sure people know that I am high risk, you know, like, like if this is something that you are very STI averse, then we should definitely be wearing condoms or potentially not having sex at all. Like, um, but it was just, it it was very surprising, maybe not surprising, but just like the level of animosity where I'm like, if you want, of course you should wear condoms. That is your choice. I'm advocating for choice here. I know it's a culture now where you say something and, uh, you know, you're dangerous because you said it or you didn't say it right or you didn't. I don't know, but I want to ask you something. And since sure. you're on here, uh, so you know, I'm monosexual, right? I'm a gay man, right? Yeah. I'm bisexual. I'm a little bit fluid as I've gotten older. I don't know how fluid I really am, but I'm more fluid than I was. I was at a sure. party one time, and the woman was wearing a zipper dress in the front. And I swear, I was 50 years old 10 years ago, and I've never, ever had this thought. I thought the whole night of, uh, of wanting to unzip that dress, and I don't even know what I would have done. I was aroused. I was all turned on. And it, and it really freaked me out. I had to go back to a therapist I worked with for trauma work. And uh, as, as a young guy, they thought I was gay because I was sexually abused by a woman. And so mm-hmm. they thought, well, maybe that's why you're gay. And I'm like, so I'm like, is this coming out? Am I latent heterosexual? Am I going to have to leave Mike? And my books are all for, it was crazy. Uh, anyway, I only bring all that up because I, I'm an educator. So I like to talk about all the LGBT. When I talk about bisexuals, you have no idea the kind of hate, the kind of horrible I, a shitty, horrible, and could you put a, um, a help me under, I mean, I kind of understand it, but maybe you could speak to it. It, it really is. Like, people really love to shit on us. It, it's, it, and I think it's this idea that we're not genuinely a part of the community and that we can choose to be, 
you know, like for me, I can choose to be with a woman and therefore have a much easier life. Like in their minds, it's like, okay, well, you can be with a woman. You're not going to be discriminated against. You don't have to worry about coming out. You don't have to worry about these things. So you don't understand our struggle. And because you don't understand our struggle, uh, you're not part of the LGBT community. Fuck you. I hate you. Yeah. And and it's so sad to me that your experience with oppression and marginalization discrimination is what validates your queer identity, where it's like you should not be, you know, like you're not more queer or gayer because you've been a victim of a hate crime. It's so sad. And of course, you know, bisexual people, if you are in like a straight passing relationship, yeah, of course, you need to check your privilege. I understand that when I walk down the street holding hands with a woman, I'm not afraid the way I am walking down the street holding hands with a man, which I do yeah. check over my shoulders. You know what I mean? To make sure yeah. nothing's going to happen. Sure. Um, so like, I-, I think it's this idea that, oh, bisexual people have it easy. They don't have our under understand our struggle. I think there's also some fear of sexual rejection mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, I'm dating a man or especially like with lesbians I are lesbians and bi women in particular where it's just like, Oh, they, they're going to leave me for a man. And, and they get lesbians are particularly mean to bi women in this setting. And so I think there's this fear of being left and being feared, having a straight life. And, um, yeah. So I, I think that's a large part that contributes to kind of this, uh, bisexual hatred. Although we're starting to see, I think changes. I think we're also because we're just starting to embrace a level of fluidity in sexuality. So even, you know, I have gay friends who've been gay for 20, 30 years, identify as such, haven't had sex with a woman. They're in their 40s, 50s, and they're so excited to have sex with a woman. And and like, and I have these men coming out as bi to me. And they're like, you know, when I was coming out 20 years ago, like bisexuality wasn't an option. You were gay or straight because I was more feminine and because I knew I loved men. And I'm predominantly attracted to men. Um, I said I was gay, and, and that's been my life. And now that I realize that bisexuality is an option, I actually want to engage with women in this way. And it's so interesting getting those questions from these older gay men who are kind of realizing it. But then also, I think there's this fear also with bisexuality that, like, kind of like Republicans and conservatives are going to use it against us, where they're like, and that's, and we've already seen that with fluidity too. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, look, see, these gay guys can be straight after 20 years. It's like, no, right. that's not what we're advocating for. And fluidity doesn't mean we can force this, you know, force being straight. And neither would I want to force being straight. I like being queer. I like dating men. Um, So I think there's also some hesitation to almost acknowledge fluidity exists because it's going to be end up being used against us, which is yeah. unfortunate. What would be, we have to almost come to a close. What would be a final message that you would want listeners to hear about you, your book, anything? Oh my God. Uh, Life is so much more fun and enjoyable if you can help reduce sexual shame. And I feel like the the really, there are kind of two tips I have for this, overarching tips, you know, for this. And the first one is I always like to think when I'm experiencing shame of any type, like, who or what is trying to control me because shame is a tool that people in position of power use to control the masses. You know what I mean? So like we slut shame women to uphold a patriarchy to keep them tethered to men. 
you know, I sometimes feel guilty or shame when I don't work hard enough. And that's just kind of like a, like if I'm not working 60, 80 hours a week, and that's just a brilliant tool of capitalism. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Then they use shame to get me to keep working harder and harder and harder and never taking a break. So often when I'm like, when I think of who or what is trying to shame me and kind of making it this external entity, I'm able to realize that, oh, this is actually not coming from me or within. This is not my thought belief. This is someone else. I'm able to create that distance. That's really important for me. And then the second thing is the importance of finding a queer community and having that friend group, because I think shame really exists and thrives in isolation. Mm-hmm. Right. When you are alone and you have no one to talk to and you can quickly have a negative spiral down about how you're a bad person or a disgusting person or a sick person, when you're able to actually talk to someone and get that support in this community to lean on, that has been one of the best ways for me um, to help overcome my sexual shame. So Love that. I'll leave you with those tid- uh, tidbits of wisdom here. But yeah, Boy Slut, a memoir manifesto is sold anywhere books are sold. You can buy it on Amazon. It is one word because if it was two word, it would have caused trouble because it has slut in it. But because it's oh. one word, it's a made up word. Oh. So that's why it is, even though it looks like it's two words on the book, like it actually has to be written as one word because okay. otherwise sex negativity you know what i mean yeah. but um yeah like I, I this book it really is for all queer people queer men bi men bi women queer people like right. alternative people i talk a lot about polyamory in it i talk a, a, lot, a lot of kinks wild kinks and crazy things in it it is raunchy it's explicit and i really hope uh you guys pick up a copy and where can they find you Sure. So uh, you, my website is ZacharyZane.com or I'm on Instagram at ZacharyZane underscore. Um, those are probably the two best ways to uh, contact me and stay in touch with my work. I love your Instagram. I'm telling you, that's where I was like, it's just fun. You're having fun. You're doing this. And then there's, oh, oh, oh. And then, you know, I'm just like all over the place. And I love it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank yeah. you, Joe. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on my, my podcast and for joining me today. Um, on Smart Sex, Smart Love, and you can hear more of my podcast at smartsexsmartlove.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, TikTok, and by the way, I have 660,000 followers now, and it's growing, wow. Instagram and Facebook, and you can go to drjoeport.com, um, and, or if you go to any of my social media, it's at drjoeport. Thanks for listening, and until next time.